people seem to really I've always thought the OZ has been a special book for a long time. And um, it's really nice to see people agreeing with me. (laughs) (laughs) Well, when you pay us, no. um, (laughs) Wait, what? (laughs) Uh, I'm sorry. uh, Forget what I said. (laughs) Joke's on you. I'm a comics writer. I have no money. I spent (laughs) printing and shipping. Welcome to the continued podcast adventures of Superhero Speak. But I think many of the people that love this character and that love superheroes in general have used these stories as inspiration to say, you know what, I'm going to do something good in the world. I'm going to make a difference like my hero when I was a kid. That is my fondest memory of it because when when you're doing comic books, you want them to affect people, right? You want people to care. You want want to strike emotions. And I knew that that clone saga was striking a lot of emotions. Can you imagine uh, Pulp Fiction starring Goofy and uh, Mickey Mouse? I can totally imagine that. I'm sure somebody's written that one too. Quarter with cheese and friends, Mickey. What? Royale with cheese, Mickey. I can totally. See? I would would watch the hell out of that movie. Yes, I gladly sacrifice that my my progeny to you, almighty Marvel beast. (laughs) But Neil Adams is somewhere going, "Hmm? it's it's my time. How do you measure success? Hey, everyone. You're listening to Superhero Speak, and I'm your host, Dave. And John. And holy shit, did Dave just scream into the goddamn microphone? (laughs) (laughs) Those are really good headphones you've got there. They are. You you can't hear me, but, you know. Something about headphones. I had to take them off for a second and change my ears. Yeah. (laughs) And, of course, you're GD. And uh, I forgot because I have a concussion now. <laughs> and, and JD, remember uh, a couple of weeks ago, we reviewed Spencer and Locke, but you lost power. I did. Right before we did the review. I did. He, so, he was, he was kind of just, you know, open his mouth and then poof, gone. <laughs> I did. This is like John can attest to what it's like living in the country now. Mm. When you get a little bit of rain and then your 1200 person town loses all the power that it has. So, so I, I figured the, Best way to make up for it is we could just have the author on and he could talk about the book with us. Oh, that's even better. Look at so, you looking using logic. I'm very proud of you, Dave. So, ladies and gentlemen, here is the one and only David Pepos. Hi. Thank you guys so much for having me. Excited to be here. So let's start off how we normally uh, start these interviews off and ask the obvious question is comic books something you've always wanted to do? I've always loved comics. Um, I think it took me a long time to give myself permission to turn it into my career. Um, I'm a third generation comics fan. My grandfather was a huge comics reader. My mother was a comics reader. Um, I remember my very first issue of Amazing um, Spider-Man when I was a kid. Uh, And uh, yeah, so it was always, that was my astronaut dream. You know, I, Mm -hmm. I grew up in Missouri. I never I didn't know anybody who had a full-time creative career. So I just didn't think that was like a, a, a job that was for me. And um, it wasn't until I, I went to college, I, um, I wound up interning at DC comics. Um, I worked oh. on final crisis and Batman RIP. And that really kind of opened up my eyes and it made me realize, Oh, there, there's a whole industry here. You could really, there are people who make their living right. this way. And um so I, I thought I wanted to be an editor for a long time. Um, you know, it was, it was a recession. There were no editorial jobs. <laughs> I, uh, 
I wound up working as the reviews editor over at Newsarama uh, for about a decade while I was kind of figuring out what I wanted to do um, with my life. And um, Spencer and Locke is kind of my, my baby for a lot of reasons because I, that was when I dipped my toe into the pool and said, well, maybe I could try writing something. Mm-hmm. Um, at the time, I really put the cart before the horse. I said, well, if I want an editorial position, I should be able to show that I can break down story and what better way to do that than by making a story of my own. And it's only looking back on it that I was like, buddy, you were putting the cart seriously before the horse. If you can write a good story, maybe you should just write stories. And so um, I had written a bunch of shorts. I had written a screenplay, um, but Spencer and Locke was the first full-length miniseries that I successfully wrote that I really wanted to, to see through and finish. And I liked the writing the first issue so much that I wrote a, an outline and I liked writing that so much that I found an artist. And I liked that so much that I found a colorist of the letter. And I liked doing that so much that I was like, Oh, chop this around and see what happens. <laughs> and then action lab emailed me and said, how soon can you get this finished? And that's when I felt like this cold chill run up my spine. <laughs> I was like, Oh, I got to finish this book now. Um, and yeah, just seeing the way that people responded to that book, just seeing the way you guys responded to that book, um, you know, three years after after the trade came out, mm-hmm. um, that was the re- that sort of made me realize, oh, I've been doing all of these jobs that have been a real challenge and have been really hard to kind of make work for me, and this is a job that was the most fulfilling thing I've ever done, and people liked it. Why don't I just do that? Mm-hmm. And so I've been uh, I've been writing comics ever since. Um, but yeah, I think, you know, if I have any one regret in my career, in a career that I've been really fortunate that I don't really have much in the way of regrets, it's just that I wish I had known sooner that I could do this. Hmm. Um, you know, I think right. it's, so, it's so easy to see creative stuff as magic, where you're like, I don't know the mechanisms right. behind this. It's, it's, you either have it or you don't, which I think is the most toxic, wrong-headed thing to say about creativity. Anyone can do this. Um it wasn't until I started looking at it as a craft, you know, it's um, look at it, you know, it's like building a chair is the way that I always think of, of, of making a comic or writing a script. Everybody knows what a chair looks like, but there's different ways you can make a chair. You can make right. it out of wood or red plastic or, you know, or make it a couch, you know, maybe make it out of fabric. How many legs does it have? How tall is it? Um, how heavy is it? Um, there are different ways you can add your spin and still make it a chair. And learning how to make chairs, sometimes by making some really bad chairs at first (laughs) that don't leave the garage and no one sees those chairs um, (laughs) until you feel confident enough to start making chairs that you can show the public. And it took me a really long time to kind of come to that realization. But um, I'm so glad that I did because honestly, this this isn't just a career. It feels like a calling. And um, the industry – they're not getting rid of me. So uh, I'll keep doing this until they yeah. put me in the ground. So just a little bit of background for the um, people who have not uh, listened to the last uh, sure. episode. Um, I met David uh, at AwesomeCon two years ago. I was there visiting Kit Steele, one of my favorite artists. And I'm always going to mention her name. And um, <laughs> I was, I was, you know, and I can't go, I can't go to a uh, convention without 40 pounds of audio equipment on my back. It's just not possible anymore. So I was prowling around looking for something to, to something to read or interview. And uh, when I 
came across uh, David's <laughs> table, I had to do a double take because it's like, oh, it, that's that's Calvin and Hobbes. That's not Calvin and Hobbes. <laughs> that's a yep. much older Calvin and Hobbes. Um, and, uh, you know, I wound up picking up, I, I talked with you, I think I talked with you for a couple of minutes. Yeah. I grabbed, I grabbed the, the first book. I took it back to the hotel in the room that night. I read it. And as soon as the doors opened the next morning, I beelined it right to your <laughs> table and, and on the spot interviewed you because it was just that good. Thank you. So, well, you know, it's, it's, uh, that was a scary book for, for, for those who don't know about Spencer and Locke, um, the easy elevator pitch for it is what if Calvin and Hobbes grew up in Sin City? Uh, <laughs> it's the story of hard-boiled detective Locke who has to solve the murder of his childhood sweetheart with his partner who happens to be a seven foot tall imaginary Panther. And um, yeah, that, you know, that series um, it was, I always say that it was certainly an evil Knievel stunt jump of a way to start your career um, mm-hmm. because Calvin and Hobbes quite rightly, I mean, Bill Watterson was a pioneer and a trailblazer and a visionary. And um, all these terms are well-earned. Uh, you know, he really uh, innovated so much in such a small amount of, of real estate every single yeah. day. It, it, Calvin and Hobbes is one of the most sacred cows in comics and for good reason. And so turning that into hamburger, um, you had to be real careful with how you serve it. Um, that was, there was certainly a book that could have blown up in my face in a big way. Um, my, my artist uh, and, and co-creator Jorge Santiago Jr. And I, we talked a lot about how to sort of walk that high wire um, in a way that, you know, was able to tell this story about trauma and mental illness and sort of the links your mind will go to protect itself from harm in a way that didn't punch down uh, both on, on, in terms of the source material, but also in terms of any readers who this reflects their real life experience. Mm-hmm. And so um, thankfully people seem to really like the book. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so, yeah, I just, but yeah, there were nights and when I say nights, I mean the night before every single issue dropped that I would wake up in a cold sweat saying, this is where they're going to turn on us. This is where they're going to get tired of us. And thankfully, um, I think we always tr- treated this book as we wanted it to be compassionate and we wanted it to be empathetic. And I think that really kind of shined through. And I think that's what has given – let readers give us the benefit of the doubt and then you know, seeing – my amazing creative team of, you know, of Jorge, of Colors Jason Smith, of Letterer Colin Bell, uh, all three of whom earned Ringo Award nominations for their work on this book, uh, which is well-deserved. Um, seeing that execution, I think people realize like, oh, this isn't just a joke. Um, this isn't a joke concept. Uh, you know, this is a joke concept that suddenly is making me cry. <laughs> and yes. I feel like that's kind of the MO for all of my books is that when you just get the log line, you kind of laugh. Uh, because you're not sure what else to do. Um, but then you read it and you're like, oh man, damn it. He made me care about this. Um, <laughs> and that's, that's, that's the highest praise that I think any of our books can get. Well, and, th- and that's the thing. Let, let's face it. This could have been just a gimmick, yeah. right? And, and the conventions are rife with derivative works. Sure. But it, the, between the writing and the artistry and just the whole, the whole work itself, it was obvious that you loved bill waterson's work you gave this the care and loving it needed 
Thank you. You it you hewn it very close to the original stuff. Like there, anybody who likes Calvin and Hobbes is going to read through this and go, "Oh, that's that. Oh, that's a, oh, that's her." And and you know, even even though it's basically the mirror universe version of yeah. them, that uh, you know, it it still it still just works. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Um, yeah I mean, you know, it's we talked a little bit earlier about like why it took me so long to realize maybe I could be a comics writer. And it's because there's a lot of terrible advice out there that people say all the time. And one of them is write what you know. And um, that is so misconstrued all the time, but I didn't know that at the, at the time I I had worked as a crime reporter um, at a newspaper for a few years. And I was working in corporate at, uh, at CBS in New York uh, when I was writing, when I came up with Spencer and Long. And I thought to myself, like, write what you know. What the hell do I know about anything? <laughs> and I, then I thought, oh, I do know comics. And at first I thought that was so limiting inherently. And then I realized it's not. Um, you know, I, I, I know about comics and I know about the history and I know how they work. And so the idea of – I had actually come up with the concept initially as a love letter to Frank Miller, to classic Frank Miller. Um, because Daredevil, The Man Without Fear, that was the book I read as a kid that made me realize, oh, real writers make these things. It's not just by committee, like a Hallmark card or something like that. And so um, I wanted to do a love letter to that. And I said, what's the weirdest thing that I could throw at old school Frank Miller? And a lot of the initial ideas I had just kind of felt shock for shock value's sake, which is not a way to, that you can kind of keep an audience uh, right. uh, interested. And um, it was only when I thought of Calvin and Hobbes that the light bulb went off. And I thought of this hard-boiled cop all beat up and grinning in the rain and holding a stuffed animal in his hands. <laughs> and then the questions start becoming, oh, what's this guy's home life like? What was his upbringing and his childhood like? And I realized, oh, that's a story that's a story with an emotional journey to it. And um, that really, you know, that became Spencer and Locke. And I, it's the story that flowed out of me the fastest. Um, I have never written a story that fast before or since. Um, But I think it just kind of speaks to the magic of those characters a little bit is that I think we all have something in our past that is traumatic and that we don't like to think about. But we always kind of find ourselves that becomes our central obstacle for our lives. And we have to kind of ask ourselves, can we ever transcend that? You know, this thing that shaped us, can we ever move past it? Or is that something we're always going to be defined by? And I don't have the answers to that question. But I think Locke in particular is a guy who's always going to try to be better than his demons. And he's always going to try to be better than his upbringing and his circumstances. He doesn't always succeed. But the fact that he he never stops trying, I think, is what kind of makes him such a hopeful character, even amongst all the grit and the muck and the darkness. And um, yeah, he's like I said, this is it's it's a it's a special book to me, um, and not just because it was my first, but it's just one that I think really speaks to a lot of the themes and character arcs that I find particularly inspiring uh, in, in fiction. You say you you say um, right what you know, JD. How many werewolves do you know? Six, <laughs> seven if you include that guy in, down the road. But oh, okay. Yeah. Um, no, I, I was going to ask you, David. Talk about your creative process a little bit. Like, sure. what do you have to do to kind of get these to kind of get this idea flushed from this uh, super high concept down to 
uh, it feels like a real like human story. Like it's yeah. There seems like there's a lot going on there. Like how did you get from from this germ of the idea into the story itself? Like what what was it step by step on that? That's a great question, and 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 one you can tell that a writer would be asking. Um, uh, <laughs> what I do, so I I I, uh, it, it, I think for me that um, the first element is just time. Um, I come up with high concepts all the time. It's kind of my f- favorite form of procrastination because um, usually I, I need to be working on something else, and so my brain then says, "Well, what if you came up with this instead?" And so I have a Google Doc that I just – I'm like, okay, it's a good idea. I write it down. Sometimes I, ch- I chat with some friends um, because oftentimes that will kill the idea pretty quickly is if I, if I say it to a friend and I immediately – I'm like, oh, that sucks. That sucks as soon as I typed it. I don't think about it ever again. Then if, but if, I have, if one of my friends says, oh, that sounds dope, I file it away and I don't think about it for a while because if I can remember it in a month, then maybe it was worth it. If I can't remember it, then obviously it wasn't worth it um, because I, I, I see this as I'm not it's not a sprint. I'm prepping for like a whole marathon here. This is going to be months of work. So I better like it. You know, I better be really passionate about it, because if I if I don't care whether or not this thing lives or dies, then like a reader won't an editor won't. Um, once I've done that, I tend to. I I tend to write some bullet points just of like, what are the big moments that I like? What's something that, you know, Spencer and Locke, for example, all right, I want to do a Spaceman spiff riff. I definitely want to do something like that. That goes in the bullet points. And I kind of Jenga those together until it kind of feels like, all right, this was something that would probably happen in a first issue versus this is something that would be more, you'd need to know the characters a little bit better before we we get into that. Um, from there, I tend to flesh it out into with you know a treatment or an outline. You know, different people use different terms for the same thing, um, and that's just kind of the you know the prose version of it all. Um, I don't worry about the timing and the rhythm and, and the pacing or anything. I'm just like this happens, um, and sometimes I throw in little lines of dialogue if there's something that kind of flashes to mind. But it's just getting that roadmap of sort of what's the general shape of the story look like that's honestly the hardest part for me that usually can take me depending on the story it can take me a few weeks sometimes it can take a few months um my book going to the chapel i can tell you it took me uh, i think it was six or seven months to get that outline hammered out and many many iterations of it hmm. um once the outline is done, though, that's when I, I like to – that's when I have a lot of fun. That's when I break it down in, into my page-to-page beat sheet where it's just like I have 22 pages. I got to get this amount of story out. That usually helps me kind of cut some of the fat a little bit, and it gives, makes every page kind of have its own. All right, I need two pages for this conversation to happen. I need two pages for this car chase, or I need a page for this reveal. Um then when I start kind of breaking it down into panel to panel to panel um, and then I start thinking about dialogue, that's when I'm kind of having the most fun. That's when I'm sort of like, all right, I, I know kind of the general melody that I'm going for here, but here's where I can throw in some, some cool riffs. And that's where I often have a lot of my, my best character moments um, is when I'm kind of noodling around in sort of the, the panel to panel in the dialogue stage. Um, hopefully not too much of a spoiler since you guys already talked about Spencer and Locke, but my, my favorite moment of that first volume came at like the 11th hour. Um, Locke's daughter hero is uh, 
it, it, she's running from these these mob enforcers and um, one of them finds her in a closet and uh, Spencer saves her life um, shoots the guy dead and we find out of course that Spencer you know it was her but she's just she's just imagining it and he tells her I'll always be as real as you need me to be and it was because I had friends asking me all the time when I was talking about this project, they were like, is he real? Is he not real? Yeah. And I got so annoyed with that question. And when I thought of that line, as I was just kind of noodling around for dialogue, I was just like, Oh, that's a cool line. Yeah. yeah add that in there. Um, and so, you know, a lot of my favorite moments I kind of find on accident, but that's only because I've already built up the scaffolding. I already know what the shape of the story looks like. So it's, you know, T- taking it like you know in, in terms of music you know you've got the musical notes but maybe you want to throw in some minor chords or maybe you kind of want to uh, mess around with the pacing of it a little bit um you know maybe you want to throw in a drum solo in the middle that's kind of where i have the most fun as a creator um but that's also because i've already sort of put in the work beforehand where i'm like okay i know this is a story i know this is a concept that i like and once i've figured that out then i'm able to sort of give myself permission to go fishing around for the the character moments and that's really the stuff that's what keeps readers interested i mean high concept is great don't get me wrong but like i'm always thinking like all right what do i need to do to make readers give a damn um if i can't answer that question then it's not really done yet and so then I, I have to keep kind of noodling around and figure out, like, how do I make even somebody who's as rough around the edges as Locke, how do I make this prickly detective still sympathetic? And, you know, in this case, I think it's, you know, he's a guy who at the heart of all of his trauma and all the, the horrible things that have happened to him, the most tragic thing about Locke is that he feels like somehow he deserves it. And he'll spend the rest of his life trying to prove that wrong. And, you know, as we all know, having read it, of course he doesn't deserve it. He didn't deserve a second of it. And I think that's what really kind of, to me anyway, makes makes him a very sympathetic character. And I think that's a theme that really plays out in a lot of my work. Yeah, you, you definitely can see that. I like how you're talking about how, um, given the character's voice, and I'm a firm believer that the, 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 the cliche is real that when you when you've done the work and you've built the characters, they're going to tell you what's going on. Sure. They're going to they're going to guide you along, and it's yeah. it's obvious that's how you get some of the best material in them. Especially when it comes to dialogue, is is you know the character's voice and you're just kind of letting them say it for you. Yeah. How did you figure out how to? I think a lot of people, especially listen to our show, they don't sure. get com- like the language of comics like they sure. think they do. But mm-hmm. I mean, like most of them say, oh, you know, you know, you know, you got five panels on the page. I need this, this, and this. How do you know that? Like, where did you sure. get that foundation? Yeah, uh, another great question. Um, uh, yeah, so there's 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 a couple different ways you can do this. Um, you know, I like I said, I spent over a decade um, writing reviews. I always say that it was that was just enough training to like barely get myself over the finish line. I learned a lot and I learned I learned from a lot of other people's mistakes and I saw a lot of tricks from other people's playbooks that I sort of incorporated into my own. But some of it there's only so much you can learn as an academic. There's you know um there's you get to a point where you can only learn by doing. You can only get to that next level by doing. But there are definitely a lot of ways that you can sort of train yourself. Um you know, uh, 
there are tons of process interviews with different creators online. Um, I actually, for a while, did my own process column at Newsarama. It was called Writer's Workshop and Artist Alley. I think those things have, were lost with the site migration over the summer. But um, I interviewed people like Rick Remender and Greg Pock and uh, Nick Spencer and Scott Snyder. And all of those were really helpful in terms of like, oh, like um, Greg Pock, I think, was the one who taught me. He was like, oh, when I started, I was terrible. And I just had to write through all the crappy words until I started getting to the good ones. And that really was a big aha moment that kind of gave me the light bulb that said, oh, maybe I'll, maybe I'll write something crappy um, because it doesn't matter. The, nobody has to see it but me. I'll learn from it, getting, getting finished with it. Um, I think writing, I wrote a short story, a short comic script every day for 90 days. Um, and some of them were just terrible, terrible concepts. That's okay. Nobody has to read them. You learn by finishing. Um, I, I think it, this was when like Charlie Sheen had his meltdown. So I wrote like rock stars from Mars and it was like, this is spinal tap, but with aliens, <laughs> um, like nothing good, but like, I, I, you know, it was finished. And then I could see once I saw the, when I, once I was able to look back and see the whole shape of it, I was like, Oh, okay. Like this is where it could have been punched up and I'll, I'll remember that for the next time. Um, something else that Scott Snyder uh, I don't know if he still does it because he's busy writing a million books right now, but this was at least uh, a decade ago. He he told me every year he would take Batman year one and he would reverse engineer it. Um, so you pick your favorite comic and, and you, you say, okay, I have the pages in front of me. Let me write the script panel one. This action happens, you know, dialogue, dialogue, caption, sound effects. Um, that's a great way of learning how to pace. You know um, if you say, okay, I really like, the way Rick Remender paces something um, just to throw a name out there. Cause I think he does a great job of pacing. You can say, all right, let me read an issue of fear agent and see how many panels he throws onto a page, how many uh, things of dialogue he throws onto a page. Um, how many words does he throw into a balloon before it starts looking like too, too blocky for me. Um, those are all things that I take into consideration. Like I, I always say my metrics probably a little off compared to, to others. I, I'm a little wordier, but I'm like, okay, I don't want more than 17, uh, captions balloons sound effects anything that's got text i don't want more than 17 per page i don't want more than 22 words per, per balloon that's usually my my metric sometimes it gets a little off and, and then i feel bad asking my letter to make fixes but um there are other things i mean there's all sorts of books on reading you know um you know sid field of course uh cliche uh, screen uh, screenplay save the cat um uh laos egri the art of dramatic writing um uh, Peter David's uh, book on writing comics, uh, I think, was really helpful. Bendis has a book on writing comics that I think uh, uh, really gets you into the into the mindset. Uh, Stephen Pressfield, the war, the the war of art. Um, I think that is a book that every creative should read. Um, it is not a book that tells you how to write. It tells you, it's a book about how to be a creative person. It's a book that that basically says if you want to be a professional, take the word aspiring out and just make whatever time you can every single day to do it. Even if you're just churning out a page a day, you know, um, you turn out a page a day, you're still writing a mini series every four months. Um, so um, yeah, there's, you know, and then little, little bits and pieces that I kind of take from, from, from everywhere. Um, you know, like it's, it's weird saying this since he's probably under investigation somewhere but like you know joss whedon um you know he, he uh, <laughs> the, 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 and knows how to write i mean not yeah, wrong. <laughs> the best piece of advice that i creative advice that i ever got 
was from an interview he did where he said, write dessert first. And that just means just because you just because a reader will consume your work sequentially does not mean you have to build it sequentially. Mm -hmm. And so if you're getting stuck in a spot, jump to a spot that you're not stuck in, Um, because I I tend to write dessert first where I'm like, okay, these are the moments that I really like that I'm most enthused about, because if I run out of things that I'm enthused about quickly, then I haven't wasted a lot of time. And if not, I've chiseled away at enough of the book that I can kind of barrel through the the connective tissue or the hard parts just through sheer momentum. Um, so, yeah, I mean, but ultimately, here's here's the thing. Going back to the chair analogy, no two people are going to build chairs the same way. And there, there's going to be certain advice that your listeners are, are going to hear me talking about. And you're, they're going to be like, that guy's a moron. He doesn't know what he's talking about. And that's <laughs> fair. Um, you know, like if it doesn't ring true to you, it doesn't ring true to you. And I've heard all sorts of terrible writing advice that people swear by. And I'm just like, well, I, I don't believe that. You know, it's, it's whatever in your gut feels right. Um, and sort of, you know, um, what was it matt fraction talking about comics being the hieronymus machines where mm-hmm. it's just you know the mechanism doesn't matter it's just that it works um you know whatever mechanism you need to get you to the finish line is the right mechanism and whatever mechanism ha- uh, hampers you from getting across the finish line toss that out um so i think you know ultimately you know it's about getting your reps in and kind of figuring out what works for you as a creator at this moment and that process will evolve as you continue and as you read more things and as you have more discoveries about yourself as a creator and as yourself as a person um and you know so it's 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 an ongoing ever evolving process um and uh yeah no two books ever come together in the same way but i tend to take certain certain tools and skill sets and i bring them to all of them um it's actually that kind of makes me think of another question. Um, yeah, you take a book like Spencer and Locke, right? Sure. And it's very multi-layered. Like you have the shorthand of the Calvin and Hobbes piece that brings you in. Then, of course, there's it's a story about trauma, um, mm-hmm. mental illness, and it's all wrapped in a mystery and a crime, and you're trying to figure it out. So there's so many you know layers to the whole book. Um, you should be so, the press guy. <laughs> so somebody that somebody that would be approaching wanting to write a story like that does that just happen do you plan that like how does like how does that come about well i think it all comes down to what's the stuff that speaks to you mm-hmm. as a creator for me um memento was one of my favorite movies and so the idea of a character who part of his journey is having to navigate a mental condition mm-hmm. and sort of being able to leverage what some might see as a disability and turn it into a strength. That was something I always wanted to do. That was something I really wanted to do for my first okay. book. Um, and so that really kind of spoke to that. That I think is why when I thought, Oh, Frank Miller's Sin city and then Calvin and Hobbes, I think that's what made that click for me was I was like, Oh, this is a character who has a condition and so much of this story is going to be about how does he live his life this way? Mm -hmm. Um, You know, and, and while it's not the, the quote unquote normal life that many people would envision, Locke has eked out a life and it's honestly a good one. 
um, given everything that he's gone through and everything he's survived. Um, but that said, you know, there are people who, you know, for example, they might really like horror, for example. Maybe that's the thing they grew up with. Um, you know, look at uh, the recent Invisible Man movie, um, the, the, the remake. Where that's also yeah. a story about, um, you know, about abusive toxic relationships right and you know and about sort of how do women escape these toxic abusive men um the invisible element is almost secondary like right. it like it becomes that becomes a story about gaslighting um so i think i think it, it it really it's all about the creator and sort of what what's in their creative dna so to speak what's the things okay. that really speak to them the most um for me, as far as it being multi-layered, uh, some of it is because I'm an overthinker, and so I'm constantly <laughs> just being like, I, I mean, I, 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 Spencer and Locke, in a lot of ways, I was like, I'm throwing everything in the kitchen sink at this book because I don't know if I'm going to get to do another one. Right. Um, you know, as soon as somebody said we're going for the dark, gritty Calvin and Hobbes book, I definitely there was a part of me that said, oh man, if I mess this up, this is it. If people hated Spencer and Locke, I don't think I would have done another book. Um, right. I, you know, um, and so I was kind of, <laughs> it was sort of my, my, my preemptive apology to Jorge was I was like, I'm going to throw in as much stuff as possible to give you at least a portfolio <laughs> after this book. I was like, so you can say that you can do noir and car chases and sci-fi and dinosaurs, um, you know, dinosaurs. Um, and and the fact that we were able to do two different kind of art styles, you know, with the with the Watterson style flashbacks with the more modern day uh, stuff. Um, that was all literally just if I'd never get to tell another comic, I want my first one to be as much of a statement as possible um, to right. have as much stuff in it as, as, as I can. Um, I think there are a lot of creators who feel that way, who, you know, it takes a lot of kind of swallowing fear to say, all right, I'm going to walk to the precipice and I'm going to make the leap and I'm going to make this book. Um, it's, you know, it takes a lot to do that. There's a certain degree of hubris to making, to being a creative and putting your stuff out there. There are some people who have grown up their whole lives saying, I'm going to be an author or I'm going to be a comic creator and good for them. But like, that was not me. I mean, this was very much, right. I had to kind of dip my toe into the pool until I accidentally fell into it. Hmm. Um, and so, um, once I kind of got called up to the plate, I was like, well, I'm going to leave it all out in the field. I, I will say that I try to make it a point that every book that I do, um, I'm going to leave it all out in the field and whether it succeeds or whether it fails, it's, it's not going to be out of any lack of effort on my part. Um, and so I think, you know, trying to say, all right, you know, is there any more layers I can add to this? Is there any more double or triple duty I can have a page do? Um, I know there are some creators who are like, here's a silent page. And I'm like, in this economy? Um, <laughs> you know, I, I mean, like, like, I mean, there are people who make it work, you know, Brubaker can make it work. Um, but like, I'm not that guy, at least not yet. And so um, uh, for me, it's always about thinking, my stories are already pretty dense. So it's just thinking, how can I stack more and more stuff in the limited page real estate that I've got 
just so people feel like when they buy this book, they've gotten enough bang for their buck. How did you transition from Cal from your uh, Spencer and Locke story into the OZ? Like what was, how did yeah. you come into that? Cause I just, I literally just got my digital files yesterday. Yeah. I haven't had a chance to sit back and read them yet. Pretty excited, but I want to know where, where this one came from, because this was the one that like in high concept alone, I remember we launched our Kickstarters in the same day and I saw that and I was like, Oh, this sounds so freaking cool. <laughs> like I was all on board right away. So, so let's uh, talk about that a little. Well, thank you. You know, it's, it's funny. Cause it, so there's what's seen in public and then there's what goes on behind the scenes. And that, as I say it like that, it probably sounds more salacious than I, I actually intended. <laughs> but I, I, by that, I mean, you know, I had written two volumes of Spencer and Locke. And my book, Going to the Chapel, came out right on the heels of Spencer and Locke Volume 2. So then everyone's like, wow, okay, going back to his roots and doing this kind of hardcore military version of The Wizard of Oz. The OZ, I have said, is what if the Hurt Locker took place in The Wizard of Oz? And it's about Dorothy Gale's granddaughter who um, gets caught up in a tornado and stranded in the war-torn land of Oz. And she's a disillusioned Iraq war veteran who finds out that – when her grandma killed the Wicked Witch of the West and then vanished, Oz kind of spiraled into this power vacuum that looks not too dissimilar to Baghdad. And so it's how she be, has to kind of navigate these factions led by her grandmother's former friends in order to try to survive the OZ, or as they call it, the Occupied Zone. Oh, my God. I want to see how the Lollipop Guild works with way into that. Um, I really need to see that. It's it's uh, <laughs> th- think, things have not gone well for for uh, for 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 uh, the munchkins. Let me tell you. So um, it, it's it's funny because I that was one of the first concepts I came up with after the first volume of Spencer and Locke came out. I I had come up with Spencer and Locke, too, which was uh, Calvin and Hobbes versus Beetle Bailey. I'd come up with going to the chapel uh, based on my experience as uh, the world's worst best man at uh, my oldest friend's wedding. Um, And then the OZ. And uh, it was funny. It was a concept that at first I was kind of like, well, maybe it's, maybe it's too much like Spencer and Locke. Maybe it's too much like Spencer and Locke. And I pitched it to an editor uh, amongst many, many other log lines that have not gone the distance since. And, um, that editor looked at the bottom of 12 different log lines. The OZ was at the very bottom. And he was like, I like that wizard of Oz book. Can you come up with it? Can you flesh that out for me? And as I fleshed it out, I totally fell in love with it. Um, and uh, that book wound up, uh, I'm not naming names for publishers, but we wound up going up against another big fantasy book. Um, and at the same time. And so we got knocked out. For, for that reason but the editor did something that was really nice that he didn't have to do when he broke the news he said listen i know this is not the news you wanted but don't give up on this book it's the real deal and i'm sorry we couldn't be the ones to print it and that really kind of meant the world i i i just like spencer and Locke. when spencer and Locke, once i got the art for that book i knew that come hell or high water, I would make that book. I would self-publish it out of spite if I had to. And that's how I felt about the OZ. Um, you know, and so I, I, I found uh, my artist and co-creator, Ruben Rojas. Um, we started work on it and probably started about a year ago. Um, maybe, maybe even a little longer. Um, you know, we, we made 
preview pages. We, we pitched it all around town. Um, the thing about the comics industry, you know, and I love the comics industry and, and this is coming from somebody who has a book by a publisher that is in previews right now, but you know, sometimes you can have a grand slam of an idea and a publisher just might not get it, you know? Mm -hmm. And, um, and so I, you know, we pitched it around. We had a lot of people say that they're really excited and then they just drag their heels. And meanwhile, I, I had told Ruben I had loved his artwork so much that I was like, well, let's just keep working on it. So I wrote the whole series and he drew two issues of it. And right around when that happened, COVID hit and the whole industry shut down. And I thought to myself, you know, I've been wanting to do Kickstarter for a long time. Everybody had been saying, this is, this is the future. This is a way to reach out to an audience that you might not, be able to reach out to in the direct market it's a different audience it's not the wednesday warriors it's not the people buying things on amazon it's not the people even buying things at cons it's a totally different ecosystem that i had done zero outreach for and i said to myself i have two issues of the oz it's some of my best work um the industry is freaking out and not knowing what's going to happen next why don't i just solve one problem with another and so i I, I told Ruben, I said, you know what? I think I want to, I think we're going to take this to Kickstarter. I think people are really going to respond to this. Um, I didn't think people were going to respond to it as much as people responded to it. Um, we, we blew through our funding in two hours. Um, we, we, we made almost $50,000 on the first issue. Um, it, uh, to say I, was, I, I am blown away is just under underselling it. Um, mm -hmm. You know, you believe in these projects and there's all these roadblocks that get thrown at you and all these obstacles and all these things. Every, the universe seems to be challenging you to, to give up. And um, I am very stubborn. Um, that is my best quality. It is my worst quality. And when I, like I said, if I'm in love with an idea enough to flesh it out, you're going to have to kill me to make this thing not happen. It will happen eventually. And so, um, yeah, I just, I, I, I couldn't be more blown away by how people have responded to that book. Um, I'm literally just waiting for the physical copies to uh, arrive at my aunt's house um, uh, Wednesday morning so I can pack and ship them. Uh, because as I found out, uh, shipping a thousand pounds of books to an apartment complex is just not something that gets done. So, um, um, so yes, so I will be filling, I will be filling my aunt's van up and driving everything back to my apartment piecemeal so I can pack it and ship it to all our lovely backers. I am really, I, I'm just, I just found the, the Kickstarter page for this. I am really sorry that I missed this. I can't believe that I, I missed this. This is what you get for not being on Twitter. I'm <laughs> true. I also gain a lot of time back in my life, but <laughs> But you can't help um, well, we'll, people, man. I know. We, we will have we will have catch ups um, uh, 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 for the second Kickstarter that'll be uh, hitting in 2021. Um, so no worries, we will we will get you covered. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it, it's. Um, I feel like I was lucky with Spencer and Locke. I felt like we were the little indie that could, mm -hmm. and with the OZ, I felt like we were the little Kickstarter that could. Um, you know, we were up there with Scott Snyder and Keanu Reeves, and I feel like we still 
went down swinging, um, you know, against those names. Um, I think we, we, we went well out of our, our weight class um, mm-hmm. uh, for, for that. And um, yeah, I think it all comes down to, you know, I'm the weak link here. I mean, you know, I, I, my, my creative teams are so top shelf that I think it's, you know, it's hard to look at these books and not be like, Oh yeah, I want to read that. That's, that looks cool. Hmm. Um, so yeah, I, I think, um, yeah, it's, you know, it's been, it's been really wild. You know, we're working on the second part right now, but, um, I realized that I kind of went very far afield of the initial question, which is how do you get from Spencer and Locke to the OZ? <laughs> and, um, oh, was that, was that where we started? I, <laughs> yeah, how, how do you, how do you get from there to there? Some of it is, you know, there are, there, I think are certain themes of course that are you know are very apparent i think all of my books coming out to this point all deal with unresolved trauma um you know these are people who have been kind of marinating in it for a while and then suddenly they kind of get called up to the plate unexpectedly and they got to sort of survive not just the task at hand but their own inner demons and it's, you know, it's really, ultimately, it's those demons that are holding them back. And can they sort of move past them or, or you know, wiggle free of them enough that they can get the job done and survive to tell the tale? Um, that said, I feel like um, I wanted to do something bigger than crime. I love crime series. It's one of my favorite genres because the, 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 the stakes um are already baked into the into the premise you know you're either the bad guy trying not to get caught or you're the 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 detective or the cop trying to stop something bad from happening um it's baked in there um the 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 whereas fantasy i really wanted to do something big and i think fantasy and sci-fi lend themselves well to scale and so the idea of kind of doing this big larger than life action story um a twist on the wizard of Oz that that spoke to me. I mean, I immediately kind of saw imagery, you know, I saw the idea of the tin man, for example, kind of turned into this big kind of steampunk soldier who has been destroyed and rebuilt so many different times, you know, that he's, he's kind of a walking tank. Um, That was kind of cool. You know Uh, the idea of, you know, what happens to the cowardly lion when he doesn't, you know, what's the calculus of of cowardice or of courage when you have an entire nation the animal kingdom that you have to take care of how does that change um you know the scarecrow you know the guy who has the brain who can think of a solution to anything what happens when you when he is thrown into a problem that there is no solving in this case a country that's falling apart at his feet uh what does that do to that guy um there were me, you know, I, I mean, this all goes back to the original L. Frank Baum books, uh, you know, as, as well as the iconic uh, uh, Judy Garland film. But each of those characters have their own arcs. They're very clear. They're very obvious. Um, you know, you, you know them. They're, it's cultural osmosis. You're able to then kind of take a twist on that. That still kind of remains true to the original source material. Um, but then, you know, you also have fun with deviating a bit. Um, you know, uh, without, you know, spoiling too much, you know, what happens when you give a bunch of winged monkeys explosives, you know, um, you know, that's not fun for anybody. Um, you know, (laughs) well, it's fun for me to write it. It's fun for you to read it. Um, uh, but yeah, it's, 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 uh, so I, I think 
I was able to take to build upon some of the themes and some of the kind of fun stuff that I'd done with Spencer and Locke. But on the other hand, I think I was able to kind of grow a little bit from that first book. Um, you know, for example, you know, I, I, I always try to, I, one of the first questions that Jorge asked me with Spencer and Locke was, is there a reason we don't make Locke a character of color? And we thought about that for a long time before deciding against it. And the, and the main reason was not even, you know, will this translate as far as the Bill Watterson homage? It was just more of, if I make, if I made Locke a character of color, it would be the wrong kind of representation. It would set, suddenly the question would be, is this book supposed to be about, you know, Locke growing up in this kind of squalid urban environment because he's a character of color, which is obviously, you know, no, that was like, that's not something, that is not something I would touch with a 10 foot pole. Right. But it was a question that I think was well asked. And it's something that I keep asking now for every Mm -hmm. single project is would this book be, would it be negative in any way if I had a book starring Mm. um, a woman or someone non-binary or someone trans or um, someone of color? Um, If the answer is no, then why shouldn't I do that? You know, I I feel like that's kind of, I can't speak. Look, I'm a white Jewish writer in LA. So like, that's the furthest (laughs) from like a minority group. So I can't speak to anybody's lived experiences authentically, but I can at least do my own part in making it that like, it's not considered weird, you know, to have a character of color or or, or a female character or a non-binary character. And so I think, you know, having, Dorothy, our lead in that, being a woman of color who is also an Iraq war veteran. Um, I was kind of like, yeah, that feels that feels like uh, a barrier being broken here that we don't get to see a whole lot of in comics, um, that we don't really even get to see a whole lot of in pop culture. Um, you know, there's no reason not to, is sort of was 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 my thinking. Um, so yeah, it's you know, it's it's me getting to play with a lot of the same elements that i liked in spencer and Locke, but it's able to do it a different angle in a different direction and a different scale um and so yeah i feel like i i love all of my books um for different reasons but the oz seeing the reactions that we've already gotten from people uh with ptsd people who have served in the military. And this is just in 24 hours. Um, I already feel like this book was well worth doing. Um, This feels like a book that we had something to say with it. And we tried sort of with the best of our abilities and with the best of our compassion and with the best of our empathy and people seem to be responding to it. And um, that means something to me. Um, And so, um, you always kind of roll the dice with these books. Um, but I feel even without sort of the dollar signs behind it, just seeing how people have responded, I feel vindicated. Um, and I, I, I'm very excited uh, for people to see what we've got coming next. Um, speaking of coming next, and yeah. uh, you mentioned you had a book in previews. I assume that's yes. uh, Scout's Honor. Yes. Would you like to tell us about this book? Sure. Um, so Scout's Honor is uh, my new series at Aftershock that is in uh, pre-orders right now. Um, uh, pre-order card is uh, NOV 200994. 
uh, in case you, you want to know. You can also pre-order the second issue while you're there. Um, the story is um, uh, a generation after a nuclear apocalypse, um, a cult has risen from the ashes, and their Bible is an old Boy Scout manual. No. Old. And, so <laughs> yeah so so um so scouts honor actually uh, picks up um a few hundred years after the bombs have fallen and after this group of survivors has escaped the their 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 their, their fallout shelter their, their their bunker and um this cult has really kind of mutated into this very ultra masculine survivalist society and our story follows kit um, a young scout who is really kind of the epitome of all good things scout-like um, embodies the seven laws of the Ranger Scouts, uh, written, enshrined by their founder, Dr. Jefferson Hancock, their Jesus Messiah figure. <laughs> There's only one catch. Um, the Ranger Scouts only allow men to serve. And so Kit has had to hide her identity as a woman in order to pursue what she considers her true calling. Uh, unfortunately, as what happens with cults, um, there are secrets. And when Kit discovers a particularly harrowing one, um, she's going to kind of lose her religion. And so this is really the story of kind of figuring out where do you go from here when you figured when you find out that everything you've been raised to believe is built on a lie. Um, so this is really, you know, it's a story about um, kind of not just how lies are corrosive, but the truth blinding. Um, it's also a story about toxic masculinity um, and sort of what happens when you have a whole society that is built on this tenet of survival at all costs. How can that kind of curdle and mutate into something that, sure, you'll survive, but are you a particularly just or equitable society as a result? Hmm. Um, it was inspired by... Uh, I was not a Boy Scout, but my younger brothers were. And being on the outside looking in, you know, when you are a scout, you see this is all built on self-sufficiency and, um, and, and, and practical skills. When you're on the outside, you see all the pageantry and the bylaws and the costumes, and it looks like a cult. Hmm. And so sort of taking that to the logical extreme, uh, for example, you know, history is kind of a game of telephone, right? You know, mm-hmm. it's, 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 it's not just written by the victors. In this case, it's written by the survivors. And so one of my favorite elements that we talk about later in the series is um, it's considered sort of a coming of age to get your first switchblade. But in this case, the history has been so mutated that they're like, the original Ranger Scouts had these giant swords that each had their own special sub blades that would <laughs> each deal with a particular instance. So you would have like a wedge blade to pry open armor, or you'd have something to, you know, saw, you know, saw through meat, or even some of them had, you know, uh, flamethrower capabilities. And so these wow. scouts will, you know, they will get giant switchblades because that's what they consider coming of age but you look at like even just the original laws of the boy scouts and you can see how those could get twisted into culty stuff pretty quick i mean they one of the rules of being a boy scout one of the actual 10 laws of of being a boy scout is uh obeying your scout master 
without question. Yeah. You know, like I, is- I, I was a Boy Scout. So, yeah, I yeah, remember. So was I. I was a Cub Scout, then a Weeblow, then a Boy Scout. And yeah. And I, 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 when I got old enough to understand what was going on, I actually, I, I jump ship. It's, I just, it's, it's, it, it, there's so much, like, like I said, uh, Jewish writer in, in on the West Coast, um, you know, but I grew up in the conservative Midwest. And so it's one of those things I feel like my sort of political and spiritual awakening as an adult came when I left home. But so much of that is baked into Scout's Honor. Um, is sort of figuring out once you once you sort of see the the the, the edges and your peripheral view, you can't unsee them, and then you kind of have to figure out like well where do I go from here, mm-hmm. you know? Um, I think a lot of um, my 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 partner was raised Catholic, and so and she particularly kind of gravitated away from the church in the wake of the Catholic priest scandals, and sort of there are a lot of people in the, in the same boat. It's sort of you know how how can you navigate the tenets of the religion, which you may have grown up with and may be a very positive thing for you with the human institution behind it, which might not have people's best interests at heart or might have its own sort of sinister undertones. Um, That is going to be a lot of Kit's journey and, um, you know, going from sort of true believer to seeker of the truth to something in between. Um, and so, yeah, kind of exploring this society, which has, you know, it's survivalism is well-earned. Um, you know, how do you survive the irradiated Colorado badlands? Well, you, you, you learn to be the tough thing. And, um, so there's going to be a lot of sort of kit having to use all of these hard-earned skills in order to find the truth and, and survive the fallout that comes from it. I think you've you, you've just sold the uh, an issue, uh, uh, the first two issues. Um, yeah, I have, to, I, have to, I have to ask you: um, yeah. Are you a fan of Star Trek: The Original Series? Yeah. Okay, because I think that's one of the uh, things I really like about your writing is you're making a point and you're telling a social point, a, a, um, whatever you want to say. Sure. Without being in your face about it. Sure. You you have found a creative fictional way to say, Hey, look at these things. And, um, and I think that's something that pop force you to think about it. Thank you. It's one of the things that pop entertainment has gotten away from where they're like, they're in your face. Like even in comics now, it's like, you know, oh, it this can be is... it can be hard. You know, it, yeah, because it's 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 very much a tightrope that you have to walk. Um, where it's sort of uh, you want to just keep people. Of course, you want to keep people entertained and you want to keep them invested. Right, invested is really the right word. But then, yeah, it's like you've got sort of your theme and your point of view and your message, and you're like, how do I sort of you know come across with that? And you know, uh, look, uh, I I've I've got it easier than a lot of people. So, you know, it's easy for me to sort of say it like this without having that sort of skin in the game. Mm -hmm. But I I feel like for me, um, you know, the best thing I can do is, you know, sort of be the best ally I can be and Mm -hmm. sort of, you know, and, and, and try to speak to the themes that speak to me the most, that feel the most authentic coming from me. 
and um and to do it as entertaining of a way as i can um you know i look comics are like baseball you know your batting average is going to be your batting average and i've i've been very fortunate with my batting average Mm -hmm. so far but you know that if i stay in this industry as long as i'm going to stay in this industry it will not happen that way like i'm not going to bat a thousand but i think for me as long as i'm trying to do something a little bit more than just punch kick you know uh explosion um (laughs) it keeps me interested as, as 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 a creator um and you know it's funny i i think a lot of where this comes from you know i i i talked about my partner and she's she's my first reader she's really kind of my 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 compass for this whole thing so if you liked mm-hmm. any of my books you can blame her um <laughs> but she she is not a comics reader um you know i don't think she ever read a comic before she met me but she's a voracious reader of fiction and i think she's got pretty good taste so i always bounce ideas off her and i find that if i don't have a good human core to it she kind of she politely smiles and nods and i know that is, this is not ready for prime time i mean ultimately though she is a great subsection of what i'm trying to do in comics mm-hmm. which is i love the wednesday warriors and i love the diehard comics fans i grew up as one of them however i want I don't want to preach to the choir. I want right. converts. And so I want my story to pass what I call the grandma test, which is, can you tell the, can you, can you explain what this concept is to your grandma in a way that she says anything other than, Oh, that's nice. Yeah. You know, um, if, you know, and so I think that kind of informs the way I approach things. And I right. think that's why it becomes, I like high concepts that are kind of a little outlandish and a little eclectic and then putting like a real human core at it. So you mm-hmm. can't ignore it. I, it's, I, I joke that uh, I build trash concepts that you then fall in love with and cry over. Uh, I, you, all of my books are usually, I didn't expect to like this, which um, thanks. Um, you know, I'll, I'll take it. Um, you know, because I think ultimately if you start out with something that people are like, mm, I don't know, I guess I'll give it a shot because it looks good. And then they like it in spite of themselves. It gives you a lot more latitude to try more things um, down the road because people know that it doesn't matter how weird it is. You're going to do something to try to justify it. Cool. Both my comics and my life. <laughs> <laughs> I'll save that for the last question. Um <laughs> <laughs> so um well actually so i'll, I'll ask this because uh it's something we ask all our guests yeah i'm sure john forgot to ask you this uh i did not uh, i think so we normally sign off Pretty the sure. podcast <laughs> with uh we say don't let your cape get caught in the door which mm-hmm. you know kind of started as a joke but it's kind of morphed to mean like don't let your shortcomings and your foibles get in your way of achieving your goals um What's the shortcoming in your life that you've gotten over to, to achieve one of your goals? Um, boy, that's a, that's a tough one. Um, <laughs> you know, I, um, I mean, I, the global one, which I, I don't talk about often, but I, you know, since you ask, um, I was a very late bloomer talking. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't talk for a very long time. Um, my parents always say that now I make up for lost time. Uh, but I always, I, I always find that, you know, 
as as a kid who had to who had to do you know speech therapy to kind of teach himself how to talk um i always find it very vindicating that now my my work is in words um mm-hmm. you know I, I i think it's something that you can take for granted until you you have a kid that doesn't talk um i think in terms of day to day you know maybe it's a cop out saying this but it's just it's learning how to get out of my own way um mm-hmm. you know i think it, it it letting the ideas come um without necessarily editing them on the way out um you know right. i'm i there are people who talk about the vomit draft and then they kind of punch it up and i'm really bad at doing the vomit draft um i usually am sort of fine tuning it within an inch of its life mm-hmm. and that's great when it's done that means that i'm not really i'm not really doing a whole lot of second and third drafts because i've already done like 10 drafts on the way in but I think it does make my process a little slower, Um, you know, but um, at the same time, it's tough because I'm a big believer in, I don't care how fast the work comes out. If the work is at the level I want it to be at. Right. Um, You know, I had a year in between Spencer and Locke and Spencer or uh, no, I had almost two years in between Spencer and Locke and Spencer and Locke too, um, between those coming out. But that book stands. Mm-hmm. Um, and at the end of the day, you know, when it, when cons come back, whenever they come back, no one's going to care that there was a two-year gap between those books. Right. Um, they'll buy them right then and there. Um, my ultimate goal is I want to be able to sleep at night. And I want the work to reflect that. So, um, yeah, I, I, I'm trying to be a little more com- creatively compassionate with myself as far as my, my, my writing speed goes. Um, and yeah, just learning how to get out of my own way and not invent problems um, that I then have to solve down the line, um, as opposed to just kind of going with the flow a little bit more um, and, and, and letting the universe uh, uh, say something to me instead. Okay. All right. And now a little pop culture fun. Yes. Because we've been talking about it on the show, but we didn't talk about it last week. Um, have you been watching The Mandalorian? Oh, God. Okay. I, I, I haven't seen this season yet. Oh, um, no, I, don't I, spoil it for him. No, I saw, no, se- I I saw season one. Um, I am waiting for WandaVision to come out before I restart oh, my okay. Disney Plus account. Yeah. Um, so... Yes. If you were going to ask me about Ted Lasso, I would talk your ear off about Ted Lasso. <laughs> uh, but uh, I'm 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 behind on Mandalorian. Um, right. I saw that Rosario uh, uh, Dawson, Dawson was on uh, was on the show uh, yes. last week, and I heard it was amazing. Yes. Um, but yes, I I I, yeah. I got to catch up. Um, yes. Okay. Yeah. All right. You're missing. You're missing some of the best TV out there. Um, I could understand if it was HBO Max that you'd let it lapse for a while. But, but I Disney like, Plus. I feel like Disney Plus. I own all the Marvel movies on Amazon already, and yeah. I, I, um, we had it for the first season of The Mandalorian, and we blew through the whole thing. And then we watched the thing about the the documentary about the seeing eye dog train uh, seeing eye dogs in training, and that was cute. 
And then I feel like I ran out of stuff to watch in that first week. And so we just kind of let the trial go. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I'm waiting. I'm waiting for the Marvel stuff to come on because, like, then, then I'm, of course, I'm hooked. I'm a mark for it. Um, you know, to be honest, <laughs> this is probably me putting my foot in my mouth, but whatever. Um, I, you know, for HBO Max, I'm almost excited to see Justice League the Snyder cut. Oh yeah. You're, you're in good company there. (laughs) Only only because I I can't say I, I liked any of those movies, but, but I have to imagine that I would like the movie with one guy's point of view than two guys point of views. So um, I'm kind of like, I'm kind of like I'm bracing myself for not liking it any more than I didn't like man of steel, but I'm like, well, at least it'll be creatively honest. Um, and so I'm very curious what that movie is going to look like. Um, you know, find me again next year when it comes out, I think it's coming out what Christmas the next year. Um, I'm not even sure. Um, you know, I'm sure I'll be like, why did I spend this like four hours watching this? But (laughs) I'm curious. I'm curious. It's like being like a spectator for the Hindenburg going off. Like you don't know (laughs) what that's going to look like, but you know, it is a being a part of history to watch it. So, yes. uh, so. It, it's also like, it's, it's also like having somebody who instant instigated a car crash say, Hey, I can make this car crash so much better. Yes. <laughs> you know? I, and of course you're like, well, it's a car crash. I have to watch it. I mean, yeah. uh, you know, this could get really bad. <laughs> yes. Yes, exactly. Exactly. This is, it's not really the stunt jumps that I'm used to with my own books. This is more of just like, well, I'm not expecting a whole lot out of this, but like, it's going to, I feel like it's going to be part of the cultural conversation. And so I have to see it now at this yes. point um, only because, I mean, I felt the same way with, with the Joker, which is a movie I also was did not really like. Um, but I was like, well, it's part of the cultural conversation. Like, I feel like I have to see it in order to be like an informed citizen. Right. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> you yeah. know, yeah. The Joker is a as a high concept standalone piece of art isn't bad as a Joker movie. Eh. Yeah, yeah. It's it's it. You know, it's a uh, yeah. It's <laughs> it was a film. It was something I saw in the theater. <laughs> it was a film. Um, yeah. You know, uh, uh, the guy who ruined the fact that ru- the guy who ruined Calvin and Hobbes is is saying anything about the dark gritty Joker movie is probably <laughs> something that's pretty rich on paper. Um, but but um, yeah, I don't know. I I I, I uh, it it felt it felt um, unremittingly bleak from start to finish, and I was just like, oh, okay. yes romanticized bleak which is not necessarily my particular favorite type of bleak Mm. um but uh yeah but yeah mandalorian i'm definitely gonna check that out (laughs) (laughs) when i get disney plus back uh uh for sure it's gonna be it's gonna be on on my list um until then i'll just watch ted lasso a bunch of times until it comes out yeah well it's all it's all covid's fault again anyway because since they had to delay everything that's why they're delaying putting out WandaVision because apparently it ties in to the movies. Oh, interesting. I yes. did not know that. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's starting in January, I think. So, but we are getting streaming Wonder Woman the end of this month. So, I forgot. Yeah, yeah, I'm excited for that. I that I that I am genuinely excited for. I really enjoyed. I would love to know when that comes out 
<laughs> the uh, how it does in theaters versus how many people watch it streaming. They'll talk about it. There'll be a lot of articles about that. Yeah. yeah. I I yeah, I'm very curious. I mean, I know Warner Brothers is kind of figuring out everything with since Tenet did not do the numbers they were hoping it would do. Yeah. In theaters, but uh I'm really excited. I really liked like 80% of the first Wonder Woman movie. Um uh, uh I pretty much pretty much up until she stabs Ludendorff. Um I really enjoyed that movie. Well, that was because of Snyder. I mean, that's yes. the yeah, part he that, wrote. <laughs> he yeah, wrote that, from like, the, there to the sky beam. And <laughs> yeah, like 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 once it turns into a video game, I was like a little less keen on it. But um, but that first like eighty percent of that movie is like genuinely excellent. Yes, and um, uh, so I am very excited for part two. Uh, also because I'm very curious about uh, how they got Chris Pine back into the movie. Um, I'm genuinely curious about that because he is a charming wonderful man um and uh he was great in the first movie and i can't wait to see him in part two yeah it's kind of hard to unblow up somebody um, yeah i'm so i'm very curious how that's gonna go <laughs> maybe he jumped out of the plane right before it blew up you don't know and yeah. didn't age for 50 years yeah uh, sure captain right? america didn't age maybe he fell in ice he did uh-huh right next to captain america right next to captain america (laughs) that'll be the first crossover movie Uh, (laughs) gods so Uh, oh go ahead john oh no i was gonna probably ask the same question you're gonna ask like where where can we find yes yeah where where can we like what are some other books that you have out and where can people find them Sure. Well, um, so you can get uh, Spencer and Locke, Spencer and Locke 2, and my uh, Die Hard Meets Wedding Crashers book, uh, Going to the Chapel. Um, you can get that uh, at your local comic shop, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Comixology, uh, anywhere comics are sold. Mm. Um, you, can, um, you can order the OZ through our Backerkit site. Um, uh, I believe it's the ozcomic.backerkit.com. Um, Scout's Honor, you can pre-order the first two issues through your local comic shop now. Um, you can find me on Facebook, um, Twitter, and Instagram. I'm at Pepposty on Twitter and Instagram. I'm at David Pepos Comics on Facebook. You can subscribe to my newsletter, Pep Talks, at uh, bit.ly slash pepnews. Um, or you can visit my website, davidpepos.com. Uh, just launched that uh, earlier this month. Um, and uh, so, yeah, you can find me on plenty of places on the internet. Huh, pep talks. I see taking your name and turning it into something. That's you know, you're good at that. <laughs> <laughs> Easy way to get people to pronounce my name right too. <laughs> um so the question that we normally end on is yeah. how do you measure success? Mm, great question. Um book by book. Um, mm-hmm. you know, I, I feel like if I can keep growing as a creator and keep kind of stretching different muscles. Um, I feel like it's worth, it's worth it. Um, I'm not a guy who cares about the numbers. I'm not the guy Mm -hmm. who cares about the bank account. I'm not the guy, like the only thing I care about is do I feel like I left it out on the field with a book and that I have, that I have left it on there with all of my skills and that maybe I've, demonstrated some measurable growth since the last time I did this. Um, So far, I feel pretty good about that. Um, I know that this is not an industry where people have perfect records. 
Um, and I, I'm sort of gearing myself up for when is the book that they're not going to like um, <laughs> and, and sort of mentally preparing myself. I do that with every book. But I think success for me at this point is just having a collection of work that I would read as a reader. Um, And uh, so far I've been really fortunate that I've gotten to work with such top shelf creative teams, Jorge Santiago Jr., Gavin Guidry, uh, Ruben Rojas, uh, Luca Kesselinguida for uh, Scouts Honor, um, that I feel good about the books that we've put out. And, um, you know, other than that, um, like I said, I'm going to keep making these books until they put me in the ground. And uh, Kickstarter has been a wonderful way to ensure that I will keep doing that. Mm-hmm. And so um, I'm just excited for uh, for the next round of books. That's success is doing another book. Cool. All right. Cool. John, JD, you have anything to add? Oh, thanks for coming on, man. Yeah, oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you guys for having me. Um, and yeah, you know, um, yeah, everybody listening, thank you for listening. Um, and yeah, call your local comic shop. Um, our final order cutoff date for Scouts Honor is uh, Monday, December is that 12th, 14th, um, uh, that Monday. Um, so uh, tell your local comic shop, um, order, order you copy, order you multiple copies, tell your friends, um, you know, great stocking stuffer gift uh, ahead of Christmas um, or uh, Hanukkah or any holidays that you might celebrate. <laughs> um, so uh, but yeah, no, thank you fellas for having me. I really appreciate you taking the time and for, uh, for your wonderful, as always, questions. Cool. All right. No worries, man. Well, thank you again for uh, coming on. And as always, boys and girls, thanks for listening. And don't let your cape get caught in the door. Have a good week.